Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study. We ask that you'll join us with your spirit and your presence, and you will fill our hearts with your love and joy, and give us wisdom and discernment that we might know your methods and be able to apply them to our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our quarterly origins, and the title this week is Creation in the Fall. And the memory text is out of Genesis 3.15, and it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent after the fall. What do you think about that text? Why, why would you think God would say he would put, put enmity between the fallen humans and Satan? Oh, did you hear what she said? She said it was. So the question was, would, it, would, would humans have a, a desire to resist Satan if God didn't specifically act to put a desire for goodness in the heart? The text, uh, for those who believe the Bible, is a very powerful text against the natural good that exists in humanity, that we don't naturally evolve to higher levels of goodness and, and advance to higher levels of social uh, 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 kindness and graciousness. And in fact, anybody ever hear of a book called Lord of the Flies? Yeah, it was a depiction of what happens in a society when there is no structure or order. And, and in that society, it was basically a, a group of boys after a shipwreck ended up on an island together. And uh, the strong survived and the weak were killed. And do you think that's a mischaracterization of human nature? Well, this is what I read out of Signs of the Times. It was a, it was a 1895, July 11 issue. And it said, the Lord says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on united opposition against the God of hosts. There is no natural enmity between evil angels and evil men. Both are evil through transgression of God's law, and evil will always league against good. Fallen men and fallen angels enter into a desperate companionship. Do you think, uh, what, do you agree with that? Or do you think that's like fantasy land? What do you think? Have you not seen in your own lives where evil leagues against good? They join together against the good. Have you not seen that? People that were, you know, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we join up together. Well, what are the implications of this text? Other implications. Do you think Satan, when this was pronounced by God in Eden, upon Satan, I will, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and, and the seed of her seed will crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. Do you think Satan understood in a general sense that God was telling him that a savior was coming? Do you think he understood in a general sense that his, his hold here was not secure and there was a savior coming? And then what do you think think he did for the next thousands of years. You think he sat back in his recliner and just waited? Do you think he took this as a, you know, throw down the gauntlet? Oh yeah? Yeah, well try it. See what happens. Do you think he went to war to stop God from fulfilling this promise? He almost succeeded. He got down to one. Well, yes, it's, and so, so the strategy for God, what, the key to God's plan, what was the key to God's successful plan to crush the serpent's head? What was the key to it? 
Christ. Christ, the seed of the woman. Christ would crush the head of the serpent. And that, and, and that key means that Christ would come as an angelic being. No. He would come in his divine form. No. no. He would partake of humanity in order to achieve this end. Yes or no? So the key to God's promise was Christ's coming in incarnation, the incarnate Christ. That's the key. So what is Satan's strategy to stop it? That's the key. What's Satan's key to stop it? Destroy 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 all the avenues. To close, if possible, to get all human beings to solidify their hearts against God. Would God force a woman to be the vessel for his son against her will? Would God want a woman who's hardened in opposition, someone like a Jezebel, would God want a woman with a heart like that to actually be the the mother of his his son on earth? No. No. So Russell was alluding to the fact that according to Scripture, there was a time in human history where the Scripture says there was only one righteous man left on the whole earth. Only one. Think it through. The avenue through which the Messiah would come had gotten very, very narrow. And so, with this idea in mind of a, of, a, of, a, of a promised Savior that needed to come, of a battle working behind the scenes, you can see it in places like the book of Job and other things going on, does it give some insight into how we understand God's actions in Old Testament times? Some read the Old Testament. I was uh, in Salt Lake last week, and one of the questions came up uh, after hearing my presentations over um, a variety of different topics, including God's character. The question came, well, how do you understand God in the Old Testament? How do you understand God? I mean, how can you say he, he, do, he doesn't punish? He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he's not vengeful. I would think it was the question. How do, you, how do you say he's not vengeful when you look at the Old Testament? Does this perspective give insight? What was God working to achieve? Was he working to keep open an avenue for the Messiah? Do you notice after, after the cross, humanity has been so much more kinder and gracious and loving and nurturing and we haven't had all the wickedness after the cross like we've had before the cross, right? We haven't had Nero and we haven't had, you know, uh, uh, Stalin and Hitler and, and all these horrible things. Yeah, we, the world is just as wicked and just as horrible on a mass scale as it was before the cross, wasn't it? Isn't it? But do we find God acting after the cross in ways he did before the cross? No, we don't. Why? Because the avenue no longer needs to be kept open. Christ has come. Christ has achieved what was necessary for salvation. And God did not have to continue to act to protect that avenue anymore. And that's what you see happening in the Old Testament over and over again. And you see the target and the focus of the, most of the Old Testament is on that avenue. The, the, the promise to Abraham, the seed of Abraham was the avenue. And Satan is targeting to destroy that avenue. And God is acting constantly to offer protection in various ways. And we'll come back to this theme as we go on. Next paragraph. For some people, the idea of a devil is an ancient superstition that, does not, uh, that is not to be taken seriously. Scripture, however, is unequivocal. Though Satan is defeated, a defeated foe, he is here on earth and he is determined to wreak as much havoc and destruction as possible against God's creation. What do you think this idea of Satan as a defeated foe? Has he surrendered? Has he been destroyed? Yes. 
Has he been imprisoned? If he's defeated, why are we still here? Why is there still pain and suffering? Why do we teach that he is coming one day to impersonate Christ and deceive the world if he's defeated? What does defeated mean? How do you hear the word? It actually has different meanings. I, I tend to hear it in a way that I don't think works here. I hear it in the way of destroyed. He's defeated, he's destroyed, which is one of the meanings. That's the first meaning. Second meaning is to nullify. To nullify. I hear it that way too. Has he been nullified? But there's a third meaning. To win a victory over. Did, did Christ... Well, so Satan has not been destroyed. He's also not been nullified. But did Christ win a victory? 2,000 years. Did Christ win a victory? What victory? Did, what, would you, what would you say the victory is that Christ won 2,000 years ago? How would you describe that victory? He sealed Satan's future. He sealed future and, yeah, I agree with that. But could you put some meat on what that victory was? What did he achieve? Everything that he did, he did in love. He never did anything that wasn't done in love. Okay, so love in humanity of Jesus Christ defeated, had a victory over what? What did it have a victory over? Okay, now truth, now you just threw another one in. Truth had a victory over the lies about God. He revealed truth. You see me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He revealed perfectly the Father. And the truth was a victory over the lies, but love was a victory over... over what, I, I heard it? He said that we never live completely with love. In other words, we weren't able to keep the commandments. That wasn't possible. Jesus showed that it was possible. And so Christ, in his humanity, at the exercise of his human brain that he took upon himself, loved perfectly and revealed truth perfectly. Thus, truth won a victory over the lies, revealing God is not like Satan said he is. And love, in the humanity of Jesus Christ, won a perfect victory over the selfishness with which we are plagued with. Yes? Yes, yeah, Christ was phenomenal, phenomenal what Christ achieved. Because of Jesus Christ, he won the victory saving the human race. Because Jesus Christ incarnate is also now human, there will always be a human being in existence. The human species was saved in the person of Jesus Christ. He won that victory too. The human species no longer reveals the satanic mold as Satan's goal was to erase the image of God in man and put Satan's image where it belonged, uh, where, where he wanted it, where God's image belonged. And instead, Christ restored in man the image of God. And man now re- is a dwelling place, a temple for God's spirit through the victory of Christ. So I would describe it slightly differently. I would say um, Satan and his cause are ultimately defeated and will one day be eliminated, or Christ won the victory over evil forces at the cross, but the application of that victory in order to permanently eradicate evil is ongoing. Yes? Can you elaborate on Hebrews 2.14? It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, through Christ's death, he might, he, Christ, might render powerless, and New King James Version says destroy, him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Yes. So what is the devil's power of death? 
The Bible says, and Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that you might live forever and ever. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. This is life eternal, that you might eat free, fruit off a tree in a garden. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? According to Jesus, life eternal equals knowing God and Jesus Christ and now sent. So if eternal life is knowing God, then what is eternal death? Not knowing God. So then what is Satan's power of death? He's the father of lies. So his power is the lies that he tells about God that we believe that cause us to break trust with him, that sever our connection with him, that cause us to close our hearts to him. And thus he destroyed by his death, he destroys him by, number one, revealing the truth about God, which destroys the lies and wins us back to trust. And Romans 5 says when we open our heart to God, he pours his love into our hearts. And thus he writes his law in our hearts and minds again, restoring us into unity and oneness with him. And in Hebrews 5.8, it says once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will trust him. So in Jesus Christ, we have two elements that we need. What is it that keeps us one is the lies and the distrust we have, which are restored in the revelation of God in Christ. And two is our own carnal fallen nature. And Jesus Christ perfected humanity and offers that. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Yes, in the back. Eric says, love is opposite of hate. Love for others is opposite for love of self. That's how the contrast is established. Well, I would modify that slightly, Eric. Um, love is not the opposite of hate. Love is the opposite of selfishness. God hates sin, but God is still love. And doctors hate disease, but we don't hate sick patients, and God doesn't hate sinners. But we hate deviations from the design upon which life was built that destroys. So hate is not the opposite of love, or love the opposite of hate. Love and selfishness are opposites. Yes, Russell. And getting back to the idea of Satan being defeated, <clears throat> to take a bigger, bigger picture, and he's not only was Christ and God's character revealed in the cross, but Satan's character was revealed in the cross, and therefore, he in the minds of all the heavenly and and otherworldly intelligences, he was defeated <clears throat> at that time. Yeah, I, I I think that's a phenomenal statement. And hopefully we'll get to that in the lesson further um, as we go along. Uh, let's look at Monday's lesson. And it says, uh, in Monday's lesson, the lesson points out how the serpent took what God had said and subtly changed, to cre- uh, changed it to create a lie. Then the lesson asks, how often do we face the same thing today? Someone comes with teaching that on most points, but not all, are in harmony with the scripture. It's the few points that aren't that can ruin everything else. Even mixed with truth, error is still error. I think this is an excellent point. The most effective lies are not those lies that are obviously and patently and 100% false. The most effective lies are the ones that are the closest in approximation to the truth. Think about a counterfeit dollar bill. The counterfeit dollar bill, the monopoly money, is not the most effective counterfeit dollar bill. It's not. Nobody, no, because it's very far away from the, but the most effective counterfeit money is the closest to the true. Isn't that right? So what, 
would happen if some agency of our own federal government started printing counterfeit currency. Not the Treasury Department, some other agency in the government started printing counterfeit currency. Wouldn't this be the most difficult, if, assuming they, you know, because they got inside the government, they got the tools to do it with, and they could make it look really, but it wasn't coming from the Treasury Department, so it wasn't official. Wouldn't this be the most difficult to spot? And in fact, wouldn't many people accept it as genuine? It came from some part of the government, must be right. So what is the source of the most potent counterfeit lies about God? The counterfeits about God, the lies about God. The the covering cherub, Lucifer, and, and what was his position? He came from high up in the government. Yeah, he sure did. And then 2,000 years ago, did Christ experience his greatest opposition from the Roman pagans? Where did his greatest opposition arise? From where? From the church government. The, 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 in fact, the, the high priest... The, the leader of the church stood up and said, it's better for one man to die than the whole nation. Better for one man. Let's kill him. Save the nation. What about today? Could we have individuals in church leadership that are actually spreading lies about God? Is it wrong to ask such questions? Should we believe that anyone who is in leadership in the church and has undergone the ordination ceremony is that necessarily then appointed by God God's anointed, and therefore we should accept their perspectives, ideas, views, beliefs, interpretations of Scripture without study for ourselves to know what's true. I mean, if they, should, should we do that? No. Have you heard that idea put forth? Yes. It's dangerous, guys. It's dangerous. History is replete. If you look at the history of the Jewish nation, who led the nation into idolatry repeatedly? What were the sons of Aaron doing? What were the sons of Samuel doing? What did the priests do over and over again? And the people were safe only as they remembered that they, we are priesthood of believers, each one is to think and reason and open their mind to the working of the Spirit, study for themselves, come to their own conclusion, follow the dictates of their own conscience. We share together because we're all finite, so we can learn from each other. But at the end of the day, we have to choose for ourselves, don't we? In the, in the dark section in the lesson, it says to read Matthew fifteen seven through 9, which I will read to you now. It says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then the lesson asks, what reproof did Jesus give the scribes and Pharisees concerning the addition of human thinking to the word of God? Is the lesson suggesting we are, to, we are not to think, but take the Bible only as it reads? That we shouldn't add our thinking to the scripture when we read it? Is that what they're suggesting? It almost sounded that way to me. So I would like to, you know, refer us to Deuteronomy chapter 14, where God instructed them to take the tithe and buy fermented wine and rejoice before the Lord. Let's not think about that. Let's just take it as it reads and do it. Or should we think? Or if your hands offend thee, cut, cut them off. And your eyes, you, go ahead and pluck those out. Don't think about it now. Let's do it. Yes. Thinking about what you're talking about with other people's lives and, and how dangerous that could be. For some reason, that made me think about the, the phrase about the speck in your own eye and the lies that we tell ourselves. We probably tell ourselves in quantity more lies than other people tell us. And in damage, we probably tell ourselves more lies or more significant lies than other people tell us. 
We've got to think about that, too. Well, I think that's phenomenally stated. I think that's exactly right. Jeremiah what, 17, is it? The human mind is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked. Who can know it? Yes, that we tend to have a practice of lying to ourselves. And this is, one of, again, one of the reasons why we should fellowship together, because if we actually have people we love and trust that we're willing to be open with and we're willing to listen to, they can give us feedback about ourselves. This is one of the great things of a healthy marriage. In a healthy marriage, a spouse can give you perspectives on yourself you can't see on yourself. Notice I said healthy marriage. All too often, it's the unhealthy marriage where neither one is willing to look at the beam in their own eye, and instead they spend all their time trying to pull the speck out of their spouse's eye. Yeah. So, But if we're open like that, I think that's a great point. Yes? I'd like to go back to the comment that you read from the, from the lesson, someone comes with teachings that are in harmony with scripture on most points, but not all. I don't think there's anybody that has uh, all the teachings 100% correct. I'd like to see that person sometime. You know, that's a really good point. We all have a... Uh, well, you know, I, th- I think that's a great point. When the Lord comes back in the clouds and we which are saved translate into heaven, does anybody here believe that at that moment... Prior to further enlightenment we receive on the other side, there will be anybody on earth that understands every passage of scripture exactly right. So I think that's your point. Now, maybe they're trying to say, there are certain things that we can be certain about are wrong, like God is selfish. God is the source of evil. God is the source of death. Um, These types of distortions about his character if they're woven in subtly, which of course is Satan's strategy all along, he distorts everything about God and weaves these lies in. Those types of uh, lies we, we can confront, even though we may not understand, um, you know, which of the, you know, uh, w- what the scorpion's tails represent on the horses coming out of the, what, the fifth trumpet. Right? So there's certain elements we can be sure of, and when we see those, we should resist those, yes? But there are others we should give leeway for. It, would you agree? Maybe they're not essential for um, uh, for salvation. Yeah, I would say that would be true. What is but essential? On the other hand, when some of these finer points become, in somebody's mind, a test of fellowship. See, this is what I like talking with you guys, because you, you stimulate me to think, and now you throw in something out essential for salvation. And so we could go down that line. Well, let's have that discussion. Uh, if I, we don't want to go through the rest of the notes. Um, <laughs> Yes, I find it fascinating. What is essential for salvation? God's love. God's love, where? Applied. Applied to the inner being that we're transformed to love God and others more than self. These are they who did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, describing those who are going to heaven. They've had a transformational, fundamental transformation of the heart. So they love God and love others more. His methods are restored in them. How about if they eat cheese, though? <laughs> How about if they eat pork? Okay, they eat pork. Now we've crossed the line. Cheese is okay, pork is out. How about if they've never heard of Jesus? Well, the Bible's pretty clear on that. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Those who, don't, those who have not heard the law, the Torah, the scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, a law unto themselves, showing that the law has been written on their hearts. What's the new covenant? Hebrews chapter 8. I will write my law on your hearts and minds. No one will say to his brother, 
know the Lord because we'll all know me. What is life eternal? They might know you, the only true God. So the scripture is clear. Good. You don't have to have heard the scripture to have experienced the renewal of the spirit writing the law of love on the heart. The question is, once you hear the truth, then it's what you do with it. Well, I actually like to say, what happens if somebody's had Jesus presented to them and they say, I reject Jesus? Well, then you say, tell me about the Jesus you've rejected. Because Jesus himself said to be false messiahs and false Christs that go out into the world. And how about the one they've been presented with? It's a distortion, one of Satan's mischaracterizations. And that's the only Jesus they've heard. And they rejected it. Oh, well, they're still closer to God than accepting a lie about God, aren't they? Yes. So we can't be so black and white that we say, well, that person's rejected Jesus or lost. Well, tell me about the Jesus you've rejected. Yeah. I like that very much. So, is Jesus' reaction reproving them for human thinking? Or, because that's not what the scripture says. The scripture itself says he reproves them for, for inserting human rules. Not for human thinking, but for inserting human rules, human methods, human motives, human principles. In other words, they were not adding their understanding and insights of God's kingdom of love, but they took their selfish worldly ways, applied them with their rules, and made God's kingdom look like selfish human ways. That's what they did through their rules. What other kind of thinking are we supposed to have if we're not human thinking? Ferret thinking? I mean, the only thinking we have. Come, let us reason together, it says in Isaiah 1. Paul says, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. The pu- uh, in in uh, Romans chapter 14, Hebrews 5, the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. And what thinking is going on there? It's human thinking, hopefully harmonized and lightened with the Holy Spirit. When we read prophecy and interpret the meaning of the symbols concluding that a particular beast represents a particular nation or political power arising at a particular time, whose thinking is coming to these conclusions? It's not in the text directly, is it? Last paragraph, the lesson makes an excellent point. This is an excellent point. The problem with sin is not a lack of rules, but a reprobate heart. This is so right. Even in secular society, we often hear calls for more laws against crime when there are already sufficient laws in existence. We do not need more laws so much as we need new hearts. Well said. Do you know there's a march going on in Washington today? Do you know what that march is for? Anybody want to take a guess? More gun laws. More gun laws. Do you, you realize that every one of the mass shootings that has happened over the last, what, 10 years happened in gun-free zones? Every one of them was in a zone where it was illegal to carry guns. Hmm. So do we really think that passing a new law, it's like the lesson said, it's not a problem with the law, it's a problem with the reprobate hearts of men. But think it through. Does anybody really think that a new law uh, for somebody, because remember, these people are willing to violate another law in existence called the law against murder. That's a pretty serious law, isn't it? Which is more serious, breaking the law of murder or being in a possession of a firearm that's not yours, but not using it? Which is more serious? Well, seriously, so these people are willing to commit multiple murders. 
breaking that law. Does anyone think that if we pass a law that you're not allowed to be in possession of a gun that's not registered to you, that somebody's going to say, well, I was willing to murder, but whoa, hold on. I, I'm not going to break the law. That, that's not my gun. I can't take it. Okay. Oh, well, I guess I won't murder now. <laughs> really? It will give them more venues to choose from. <laughs> The lesson is actually right. The world is getting worse because God is being pushed aside. Selfishness is gaining greater hold on more and more hearts, and men respond. How do they respond? They want to feel safe, but they don't want to come to God to have renewed hearts. They want to feel safe on their terms. So what do they do? They pile up laws upon laws, more laws, which will ultimately avail nothing. Why do you think the Bible teaches that before Christ comes, laws restricting buying and selling, unless you have a certain mark will occur because things continue to get worse and worse and godless, the godless world will seek to pass more and more laws trying to control the society and the hearts of men. Will it work? Can we pass laws to control the hearts of men? No. Can God control the hearts of men by passing laws? Do you see the problem with much of what is taught in religion, including our church? All too often, God is presented as a God who passes laws and then enforces those laws upon the threat of death. This is actually the beast system. We must stop describing God in this way. If we want the good news, the gospel, to go to the world, to prepare the world for his coming, we must present his government as it really is. The bottom green section asks... How can we be sure that the standards and rules we apply aren't going to lead us astray? How about by not creating concrete rules and applying them in all situations, but instead understanding the principles upon which God built, God built life to operate and learning to live by those principles? How about that? I'm going to give an example of living by rules rather than principles. There was an old movie. Anybody see the old 1964 movie called Zulu? It's an old classic. Michael Caine. Well, in this movie, it's a depiction of a historical battle called the Battle of Rourke's Drift in South Africa, where 156 British soldiers held off over 4,000 Zulu. In the early part of the film, though, they depicted the Zulu army attacking a column of British soldiers uh, out in the field. And as the soldiers were running out of ammunition, they ran to the quartermaster to get more ammo. They're, 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 the load that they carry with them, they're running out now, they're being attacked. So they send a runner to the, to the quartermaster to get, re, to, to get rearmed, to get more ammo. And the quartermaster would not dispense ammunition without the proper paperwork being filled out first. <laughs> because regulations required that you do not dispense anything without the proper paperwork. Needless to say, they were wiped out. Their ammo ran out and they were overrun. And the quartermaster had the ammo, but he wouldn't distribute it because he was following the rules. Do we ever follow rules in such a way we miss the big picture and instead injure and harm? I remember one health-conscious person saying, I'm going to follow the health message even if it kills me. (laughs) Tuesday's lesson. What do you think about the title of Tuesday's lesson? Deceived by the evidence. Wow. Wow. What an infla- for me, an inflammatory title. It just really it went across. Let's, let's examine it. Is there anything wrong with evidence? Is there something wrong with looking for evidence? Is there something wrong with utilizing evidence in your faith-based decision-making? 
Could this title be heard in such a way that one could misconstrue and conclude that evidence is not to be used in our religious beliefs or faith-based decisions? And what is that relationship between evidence and faith? I was in Salt Lake City last week doing a seminar, and one of the things I discovered about our Mormon friends is that they approach evidence differently than we do. They often will hear evidence, but then they go home and pray long and hard until they get a feeling of conviction about whether what was presented is true or not. And then they take that emotional feeling, that burning bosom within, as evidence that supersedes all other evidence. This is how they approach evidence. Evidence is not meritorious. It just gives you something to go pray about, and then you get a feeling or a conviction that tells you whether to believe that evidence or not. Here's what... Here's a quote, you may have heard it. It comes out of a book called Education 169. Which method do you like better? The, the, the method of, of praying for a warm feeling or this? This is out of Education 169. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. Yet God has never remove the possibility of doubt, our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. It's also found in a book called Steps to Christ, page 105. Is there a problem with evidence? Or is there a problem with how one uses evidence? Is there a difference between appealing to your reason with evidence and appealing to your feelings? Is there a difference? Which do you think is actually more reliable, more trustworthy? Evidence, appealing to your reason, or emotions, feelings? You know, James chapter 1 says, nobody should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. But Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you see on the road to Emmaus, the two men walking along discouraged and we know Christ joins them, they don't recognize him. And how did he approach them? He took them through the evidences of scripture and then when they were convinced upon the fulfillment of, his, of who he was, he revealed himself to them. But afterwards, as they're walking back to Jerusalem to tell them, the disciples, what they, their encounter with Christ, they talked to each other and said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he revealed the scripture to us? Notice what caused the burning bosom. It was not praying in a closet for a feeling, but an enlightenment of the evidence of God's word. As the light goes on, there is a conviction that comes from truth and evidence. So, is the title correct that Eve was deceived by the evidence, or was Eve deceived by Satan who manipulated and misrepresented the evidence? For instance, she had the evidence of a talking serpent who was in the forbidden tree. But was the talking serpent evidence that the tree ennobled and elevated or that another being was manipulating the serpent? What was it really evidence of? 
So Eve wasn't deceived by the evidence, but by the misconstruing of evidence, by having only partial evidence at her disposal, and by ignoring the other evidences God had given of his generosity, his goodness, his love, and his trustworthiness already before her. Were those evidences? The evidences of the entire garden was theirs, except one tree. Right, but she didn't, she came after that was put there. Yes, it was all given to her. It's yours. It's yours, free, eat freely. It's all yours. This is for you. I just have a little sympathy for her because I know how easy I'm deluded. I mean, well, let's let's look at. She saw that, but she didn't see it created. She didn't see who it came from. But she met and met with this being face to face. It says in the cool of the day, and spoke with him and knew him, and how she was treated by him. That's an evidence, too. How do we come to trust our parents? Because we were there when we were conceived and we saw it? No, we come to trust them because of our experience with them and how they treat us. Yes, Russell. We see parallels between this event in Eden and, and today's our legal system. She, she believed a witness testimony. Witness testimony is a type of evidence, but it's the least reliable evidence in court. Physical evidence uh, is, is a far more powerful um, means of either getting a conviction or proving innocence. Witness testimony is is generally regarded as unreliable. And in the old Jewish in the old Jewish court system, in order to convict somebody, you had to have at least two witnesses, and they had to agree on every point. If they disagreed on any point of their testimony, then the the accused was set free. Why the command thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor? Yeah. Because it was so important. So, um, the second paragraph, though, the second paragraph says Eve used uses three lines of evidence that lead her to the conclusion that she would benefit from eating the fruit. First, she sees that the fr- fruit. First, she sees that the tree is good for food. Perhaps she observed the serpent eating the fruit. He may have commented on how good it tasted. It's interesting that the Adam and Eve had been told not to eat of it. She notices that it is, quote, good for food. Though, talk about a conflict between the senses and the clear, thus saith the Lord. I don't know what they're trying to suggest here, but think it through. Kick your reasoning on. Weigh this out with me. When did the Lord say the tree was not good for food? Did the Lord say, don't eat the tree because it was a bad food choice, it's high in trans fats? <laughs> it's poisonous in some way. It's toxic. Now, we already read in previous lessons that there was no toxic or poisonous herb or plant in the world until after sin, these sprung up. One of the founders in nine manuscript, re- one of the founders of our church in nine manuscript releases, page 232, said the following. The fruit of the tree of knowledge was not itself injurious. It was used merely as a test of their obedience to God. Will they be obedient to God's requirements or not? So was the problem in the nutritional quality of the fruit. When Eve concluded it was good for food, this wasn't a false conclusion. Any more than if you went to the supermarket, looked at the produce in the produce section and said, hey, that's good for food. But once you make the conclusion that that's good for food, are you then free to just pile your cart full, walk out without paying? Why not? It's good for food, isn't it? Why don't you just walk out without paying then? Because it's not yours. This wasn't an issue of some toxicity in the fruit. In fact, what would have been the point of putting poisonous tree in the garden? If God would have done this, something that was wart-covered and foul-smelling, um, 
would have been much of a test for them. Or had it been laced with cyanide? And Eve takes a verse, bright, bite, foams at the mouth, and falls over dead. <laughs> Sorry, Eve, I'm not going to be taking that fruit with you after all. You see, there wasn't anything wrong with the fruit. There was something wrong with them taking the fruit. Just like there'd be something wrong with you taking the produce and leaving the store. What was the issue with the tree of knowledge? Wasn't the purpose that the tree was put there for their, for their what? For their development. For them, for their development. For their character maturity. For Adam and Eve to exercise their own individuality, their own intelligence, their own God-given ability to make choices and choose to remain loyal. To choose to practice the methods of love and trust. To prove to, to choose to practice the methods of selflessness, not the methods of, methods of selfishness and take for self. Don't you think God really had no choice in putting that tree there because Satan would have accused him of not being fair and not giving him permission to have access to those children. And don't you think that tree was maybe just like every other tree, but because Satan occupied that tree, God warned him to stay away from it? No, I don't think that was the case. I think the tree was set apart and distinct and different in some way. And and, and I've heard somewhere in the past, well, they didn't have to go by the tree. They could have avoided it. Well, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as I understand it, was right next to the tree of life in the center of the garden. They stood side by side in the center of the garden. So when they went to the tree of life, they came in proclamation to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it was really an appropriate test. Who are you going to choose? Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Are you going to choose loyalty or are you going to choose rebellion? Are you going to choose the methods of love or the methods of selfishness? It was right there. This is out of Conflict and Courage, page 13. God might have created man without the power to transgress his law. He might have withheld the hand of Adam from touching the forbidden tree. But in that case, man would have not, would have been not a free moral agent, but a mere automaton or a mere automation. Without freedom of choice, his obedience would not have been voluntary, but forced. There could have been no development of character. It would have been unworthy of man as an intelligent being and would have sustained Satan's charges of God's arbitrary rule. So why was it put there? Because God wanted them to grow, to develop, to be free beings who loved his methods and operated on his principles. And Adam, prior to sin, had the power within his created self to exercise that choice and develop a perfect character. He had the power to do it before he sinned, but he chose wrongly. When Satan sinned, he didn't have a tree to pick from. Like It's like us putting a dangerous object in a child's room and saying, don't touch it. Like I, don't, I think that the tree was just there because Satan had to have the option to, to tempt those people. I don't know. They were created in the context of a conflict in the universe. And in order for them to, to be eternally mature and sealed or settled into the truth about God, they can't be moved. They had to, in their own mind, think through the issues. Well, because the they had, in, had developed. So prior to their creation, right. they had to, in their mind, think through the issues. And they had to, act. this is key for everyone, exercise your power of choice and, and act. What will they do? 
Not just what will they think, what will they do? And in the act of choosing, we solidify neural pathways that solidify the kind of people we become. We change based on the choices we make. And so if they choose to say no, it wants, Eve, if Eve would have gone down the path of saying, you know what, that's an interesting thought, Mr. Serpent, I'm going to go get Adam. Adam, and you know what, God's coming, and he always comes in the cool of the day, let's wait and talk to him. And they have that conversation, and then they have the light, and they, no way am I to thank you, God, that I didn't take that fruit. Then the next time they approach that thing and the serpent's there, there's no, temp- there's no temptation. It's gone. They've solidified themselves. It's the act of choosing. And that's what it was there for, for their growth and their development. It says in the uh, last paragraph, um, if I can find the last paragraph, some, well, it talks about how Eve... We are, Adam, but Eve was deceived, yes. but Adam was not. Yeah, that's it. We are told that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. Why did Adam choose to eat the fruit if he wasn't deceived? And then the lesson goes on to say that we often do similar things in similar situations. Why? Why do people do things that they know is not right? Fear of rejection? Fear of abandonment? Fear of loneliness? Desire to be liked or loved? Seeking to please others? Some confused sense of duty or obligation, like women who believe that the lie that the wife is to submit to the leadership of her husband and follow his decisions even when he's going against God's will. I've seen this. You may have never seen it. I've seen it. Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson. Um, top section. It says, in Genesis 3, after the fall, the Lord opens uh, opening words... Uh, are all questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Do you think this was an interrogation? Was it an investigation? Neither. This wasn't an interrogation. This wasn't an investigation. This was a gentle reaching out to reconnect with someone who was hiding from him. It was an act of love. Hey, where are you, Adam? Did someone tell you that? It wasn't me. You didn't hear me tell you that you were naked. That's not coming from me. I'm not condemning you. That's your own conscience, Adam. The lesson then points out God's first declarative statement recorded in Scripture is a condemnation of the serpent that we read in our memory text and not humanity. This is very well said. Then the third and fourth paragraphs say, Notice, too, that only after this promise, only after hope of grace and salvation is given the ver- in verse 15, does the Lord pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrows in conception and in pain. You shall bring forth children. Then to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, blah, 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 blah. Don't miss this point. The promise of salvation comes first, followed by judgment. Only against the backdrop of the gospel, then, does judgment come. Otherwise, judgment would mean nothing but condemnation. But scripture is clear. God sent his own, his not, not only sent his son into the world, excuse me, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, to save the world through him. So, is this what's happening? Did they describe it right? Is this judgment? You might, I have some issues with this description. Uh, and let's, let's walk through them and see what you, what you think is more consistent. What did God just promise in verse 15? Didn't he just promise that a savior was coming? That the serpent would be defeated crushed and the savior would come so what would then next be the next logical thing well if you have an 
imposed law God construct, and you believe God is the sort of being who inflicts punishment for disobedience, if that's your construct to start with, then the most logical thing is that he has to pronounce judgments and punishments, just like we've described here. But what if God is not a punishing God and Satan lied? What if God is a God of love and life emanates from him and he built his universe to operate on protocols or laws that originate in his nature and are in harmony with his character of love? Then after pronouncing to the serpent the coming savior, what would God do next? Wouldn't he then in the most loving way diagnose them, describe the symptoms of their condition and intervene with therapeutic interventions? Diagnosis, symptom description, therapeutic intervention. So let's see what happens. After Adam sinned, humanity no longer naturally, automatically sought to love one another or each other. They sought self. They were selfish, right? What effect does its selfishness have upon human nature and how we treat each other? What does selfishness do to how we treat each other? What would it do to how men treat women? Would we expect that selfishness would result in the strong sacrificing themselves for the weak? Or would we expect that selfishness would result in the strong dominating the weak? What would selfishness do to our condition? And so when God says to Eve, your husband will rule over you, is this a judgment? Or is this a diagnosis of what selfishness does and a description of the symptoms you're going to go through? You're going to be dominated. Because it's what selfishness is doing. It's diagnosis and description. What about the pain in childbirth, inflicted by God or result of being out of harmony with God's design so that nature is no longer operating the way God wanted it to? Well, then why would God particularly comment on this? Because the pain of childbirth is a powerful object lesson, allowing women to experience greater insight into the heart and mind of God. Knowing labor will be painful, why do women choose to have children? Why? Why would they do it? In the aftermath of labor, why would a woman choose to have another child? Why would they do it? And why in the aftermath of this painful experience are, is there rejoicing? What's all this rejoicing about? Is it not because of love? Doesn't love for their children overcome their pain and fear and need to protect self? Aren't they willing to sacrifice self and go through this experience in order to bring this, this new object of love into the world. Likewise, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. It was for our rebirth that Christ labored as a human and suffered through the cross. Thus, the birthing process allows women to appreciate in a small way the pain and suffering God went through to rebirth us in the newness of life and the joy in God's heart to see us renewed. What about the pronouncement that Adam would have to labor to produce food from the earth? A punishment? A judgment? inflicted, or a consequence symptom described with a blessing, a therapeutic intervention. Well, we've read in some previous lessons this quarter about how every poisonous herb and every thorn and thistle were part of Satan's amalgamation of nature. It was not God doing this. This is what sin has done to God's to contaminate. Paul says in Romans 8.22 that all nature groans under the weight of sin. And so, what we have, what I find, is that God, number one, describes what's going to happen. It's going to be harder now. Nature is not going to be so accommodating to your leadership. But, has anybody heard the statement, idle hands are the devil's workshop? That God in love allowed and did not stop this to happen because man needed to be kept busy. 
Man needed to be kept busy, have something to do to keep the selfishness in somewhat of a check from growing out of control. And I've got some more elements to that in the notes, but I want to jump into to Thursday's lesson. So, do we find that God pronounces judgment and inflicts punishment, or that God diagnoses accurately, describes the symptoms resulting of the natural consequences, and then provides therapeutic tools to our blessing? Total, complete, different perspective, and, and, and doesn't God look good in the end? Amazing. We must stop presenting God in the same light as the beast of Revelation. And isn't, isn't it time that we stand up at this time in Earth's history and take the truth about God to the world? I mean, seems to me it's the time. Thursday's lesson, second and third paragraphs. It says, Thus in Scripture, God's initial statements deal with creation and then with redemption. And this redemption occurs in the context of judgment itself. You would have to. After all, what's the purpose of the gospel? What's the good news if there were no judgment, no condemnation from which to be spared? The very concept of the gospel carries with it, within itself the concept of condemnation, a condemnation that we don't have to face. That's good news. Though we have violated God's law, and though God will judge those violations, in Christ Jesus we are spared the condemnation that this judgment would inevitably bring. What are you hearing here? What is the problem as you hear described here? What is it that we are spared? According to this, God's judgment and God's condemnation. That's what it says we're spared because of Jesus Christ. So where's the problem then, according to this? If you think that uh, this comes from accepting the imperial Roman imposed law construct. See, if God is like a Roman emperor and he puts laws upon his creatures like a Roman emperor puts upon his subjects, then God must have a judgment and must punish or he would be unjust, if that's the way things operate. But if God's law is the law of love upon which he built the universe to operate, and deviations of that law are incompatible with life, then God acts to heal and restore, not to punish. It's a completely different way of looking. And and, and, And this is, of course, what scripture teaches. But if you accept this other view, then you shift the problem is no longer sin in man, our deviation from God's design. That's not our problem. Our problem is a God who must condemn us. We stand condemned by him, and we must receive pardon from him, not healing of heart. We shift the focus. And you think I'm making this up. This is out of the, the 27 fundamental beliefs. I still haven't upgraded to the 28 fundamental beliefs. Um, got that last chapter. But this is out of the 27 fundamental beliefs. It says, Christ self, this is out of page 111. Christ's self-sacrifice is pleasing to God because this sacrificial offering took away the barrier between God and sinful man. In that, Christ fully bore God's wrath on man's sin. What is the barrier here? God's wrath is the barrier. Not our sin. Our sin's not the problem, see? It's God's angry, wrathful attitude. That's the problem. We've got we to gotta appease it. We've got to have that taken away, and then we can be reconciled. See, God is, is messed up. If you just would get a little grip on his anger and wrath, well, heck, we could live for eternity in our sin because there's nothing wrong with our sin or something wrong with a mad, angry God. This is Satan's perspective. Through Christ, God's wrath is not turned into love, but is turned away from man and born by himself. Now, the next page, 112, says this in our SDA Fundamental Beliefs. For a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice required that sin be carried to judgment. And we just read all about this judgment, okay? God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. In this execution, 
the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. Really? Really? So in this version, in this universe, where's the source of death? God is the source of death. And thus they've just created an, a landscape of Eastern mysticism. Because the landscape of Eastern mysticism is a landscape of eternal dualism. That good and evil exist in balance for all eternity. Eternal dualism. And, in, and, we ta- and this has infected Christianity. To where in Christianity we either have versions of God of love and an eternal burning hell that never goes away of eternal existence of good and evil. This is Satan's goal. He wants to exist forever. This is his theory. Or we have contained within the character of God both good and evil, the source of punishment and death, and a landscape of eternal good and evil. Now, the problem with this type of philosophy is if you believe this, this is what Buddha faced, he faced fear of death. What does the scripture say? That men, um, that Christ came to save men from, from, who lived all their lives in fear of death. This is the innate natural fear because of sin. We have fear of death. Buddha had fear of death. And so what did Buddha do? He went into transcendental meditation. And transcendental meditation allowed him to escape his fear of death into a self-imposed, quasi-hypnotic, transcendental state. And I, and I can tell you the neuroscience behind it. But basically, he experiences what's called nirvana, a sense of internal peace, where he no longer experiences fear. The amygdala actually gets calmed. Your fear goes away. You actually have lower blood pressure, lower heart rate. You have better physical health. But guess what doesn't happen? You don't get renewed in character. You don't die to self. You don't become transformed to be like Christ. You don't have the law of God written upon the heart and mind. You don't get regenerated. And what's happening in Christianity, because of these theories, this is why Christianity is filled with so much fear and anxiety, regardless of denomination. And this is why Eastern Transcendental Meditations are intruding into Christianity through the God prayer and the centering prayer and these types of things, because people are looking for a way to find peace, because they're not finding it in God, because God is someone they're afraid of. We have the gospel. Our church has been blessed with insights, but we have also accepted distortions about God which incite fear and prevent a genuine transforming experience. I think it's time. It says the focus is in the wrong, you know, Revelation 14.6, it's in our lesson talking about, um, and it talks about how this is the time of God's judgment. The the focus is in the wrong place. It's not a description of God sitting in judgment. This is a description of God being judged by his creatures. And if you notice, Revelation 14 comes after Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, we have two beasts that deceive the entire world and get the entire world to believe lies about God. That's why it's followed by the gospel. The eternal gospel is presented, and we give glory to him so that people can see the contrast of what God is really like to this presentation given by the beast. This is the beast way. This is the God way. And we have to do it now because it's time for him to be rightly judged. So we'll trust him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we long so much for the truth about you to go forward. There's so many obstacles beyond our human ability to move, but Lord, we ask that you will send your, your, your power, your agencies, your spirit, your angels to open avenues of communication, to open hearts and minds, to bring people who will share this love of your kingdom, this love of your, your methods, and that we will, will give glory to you by living lives that love you and love others more, that we will understand and embrace the truth about your kingdom and methods, and you will empower us with the ability to speak clearly clearly, to shine the light forward, to set minds free, that you may be glorified in our lives and the gospel may go forward to lighten the world and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.